Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. These interviewed are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to past, present, and future legends, as well as business owners, employees, media, and land-use warriors, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle we call off-road. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active in off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world that we live and love and call off-road. This episode of Conversations with Big Rich is brought to you by the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. The mission of the Hall of Fame is to educate and inspire present and future generations of the off-road community by celebrating the achievements of those who came before. We invite you to help fulfill the mission of the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. Join, partner, or donate today. Legends live at ormhoff.org. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Sue Mead. Sue is a 2007 Ormhoff inductee. That's the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. She's an automotive journalist and a participant in Camel Trophy. Um, She's made trips to Dakar. She's been in the Baja 1000. So let's let's get on with this and say, you know, thank you, Sue, for coming on board and, uh, and talking with us today. Well, thank you for having me on your show, Rich, and for wanting to know more about my history as a enthusiastic off-roader, an occasional off-road racer, and um, a, I'm very proud to be an Ormhoff inductee. So thanks for having me on the show. We're pleased to have you here, for sure. I'm uh, I'm really excited about getting into the Ormhoff inductees. Done a couple so far. I've got a couple more on my list, but hopefully we'll get to everybody and their families that have been inducted so far. But this one is about you. So let's uh, start off the questioning. Where, where were you born and raised? Well, I was actually born in the town that I'm in again many years later. I was born in Williamstown, Massachusetts, which is in the Berkshires of Mass. That's on the border of New York State and Vermont. And it's an area with, I I love to describe it as cows and culture. Uh, We have a, it's in the mountains and we have a lot of forest roads. Some of those roads I used growing up to do some fun four wheeling. And um, that's been part of the history um, or my personal history that made me gravitate. I was not looking for this career, but when it became, when it came to me, I couldn't have been more happy. So it's a beautiful area. It's adjacent to Albany, New York, and it's near the site of some jamborees that Mark Smith put on in the, uh, an area called Charlemont, Mass. Excellent. And so it sounds like it's pretty rural, by the way you described it. And I've been in New Hampshire and Vermont and through that corner and all up and down. Didn't spend any very much time except crossing New York to get up into to Maine and Massachusetts and on up the, well, actually we made a trip up to Nova Scotia and then did a couple of rock crawls in New Hampshire. But 
really love the area and even even the the mid-sized towns it seems are pretty it it feels rural well that's a really good description it's funny because if i simply say that i live in massachusetts it's really not uncommon for people to say oh boston right. not only <laughs> and i say to them my town is literally as far away from Boston as you can be and still be in the state because I'm on the border of New York and Vermont. So it is rural. And I've had the good fortune through my career, which we'll get to, of traveling the world. And what I love is I was away from this town for a number of years. And I purposely came back here about 43 years ago to bring my daughter up here in a similar fashion to how I was brought up in sort of the sort of epic of living in a bit of a rural area with some art pursuits and theater and other things. I really purposely chose to come back here. And it's been the antidote two years where I've traveled as much as I think my top number of days away was was 248 one year. So I love living. I love coming back to a place that's quiet. And as I said, has cows in culture and some four wheel drive trails. Yeah, that's awesome. Growing up and going to school in those days, um, it was pretty much basic education. There, what there, I don't, I'm not sure about you, but like for us, there was really no electives, you know, except for like shop or home ec or something like that. Um, in, and I grew up in, on the peninsula below San Francisco. Was, was the schooling there pretty much the same? You know, I think there's been excellent schooling in the county that I live in. It's a bit of an enclave. Some of the towns that are more rural or some just rural towns. And I lived for a little patch of time in White River Junction, Vermont, which is another rural area. But rural can be different depending on where it is and the makeup of people that live in an area. Williamstown was um, one of the things that was... um, prominent feature here was the founding of Williams College and the land given by Ephraim Williams to have a free school on the land here. It's no longer free, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) What is? (laughs) But also my mother grew up on a 400 acre farm in South Williamstown, her dad being a farmer, there were nine children in the family. She goes back generations to farm families here that literally work the land. And I once wrote a book, I'm a little moving forward here, but I once wrote a book um, that was called Monster Trucks and Tractors. And my goal was to chronicle the history of traction engines. And I have a picture in that book of my grandfather walking behind a horse and furrowing the ground with a farm implement. And I remember starting to write in my book, 
this was back in the day. And I realized it was back in the day here. But now that I've traveled the world, there are many people, as you know, that use that kind of horsepower still today. And the other fun factoid about my grandfather was that he sold the first steam engine tractor in Berkshire County and was entrepreneurial and had a little bit of a dealership, if you will, with steam engine tractors. So when I was researching my book, I learned that. And that was just really cool to learn and think about my career. So how did you get into, say, the journalist side? Um, Was it something that you started in school with like English classes that you just felt that that was where you wanted to go? Or what was the process? Not at all, nor four-wheeling. I did that sort of naturally. But in terms of writing, um, when I was living in White River Junction, Vermont, a number of years ago, I had put my husband at the time, um, we're no longer together, um, but I put him through dental school and waited to finish my own schooling. And I went to a college in Plainfield, Vermont, Goddard College, which was really an, an incredible experience for me because it was about turning learners on to what they valued and what excited them in learning and saying, uh, so I had just been given a camera for Christmas and was heading off to Goddard for a bit and realized that I really liked taking pictures. And I didn't just like taking family photos, but I liked taking artistic shots and thinking about black and white photography and landscapes and unusual. My eye just gravitated toward unusual and, and or fun photos. So fast forward a couple of years, and we then moved to Williamstown upon my request coming back to the town I was born in. And I had a job that was part-time. It was 20 hours a week and was bringing my daughter up, who was two years old at this time. And I just longed to take photos. And so I would drive around with her sometimes and just take photos on some of the back roads. And that led to me thinking, well, I wonder if I could get some photos in the newspaper. And I had done this study at Goddard where I did a deep dive in photography and learned how to develop in print and put on a photo show. But I had no, uh, and I, I learned the history of photography and became familiar with the works of some well-known photographers, but I had no notion that it could be a career for me. And all of a sudden, I found myself just really longing to take pictures. And so I called the local newspaper and asked, would would you ever use any of my photos? And I was told, come in and pick up a roll of black and white film and take some shots and turn it in and we'll see if you have anything we might want to use. And my first roll of film had three photos go to the Associated Press. Very good. I was over the moon, Rich. I thought uh, maybe one photo would be used. I knew I had some ideas 
of where I would go with that role of film. So it wasn't all spontaneous, but um, some of those photos still just have great merit today. Um, but what I, when I found that out, I would get $25 for a photo that went to the Associated Press, $5 for a photo that would go to the local paper. I was, I was just over the moon. And then when I found out that I had to write a caption, which we called cut lines at that time, I was panicked because I thought, I don't know how to write a caption. I'm just taking the pictures. And then over the next year, I would soup the film in the dark room. Um, I became good friends with the photo staff, soup the film in the dark room and learned how to use. I was typing on a typewriter with a <laughs> newsprint, newsprint piece of paper, but I would sit and pull my hair out just about to write a caption. And about a year into that, one of the, the arts editor heard me telling a story about being behind the scenes at the Nutcracker when my daughter was a dancer and what it was like to be in the dressing room and behind the scenes before that was such a popular thing. Um, and she said, I, I saw a couple of your photos. I want you to write the story. And I did. And all of a sudden I, and, and I, but I said to her, I don't know how to write. And honestly, I didn't know the craft of writing. And I've been asked many times over the years, how do you write for so many different um, publications from newspapers to magazines and magazines that are car based or other based. And, but I knew none of that craft and some of it is a craft. And when I wrote that first story, I was really struggling. And the best advice was, you just told me a great story. Write the story that you told me. Just simply put those words down on paper. And it is not bad advice, um, especially when you and I know some of my greatest adventures have been spending a month in Borneo or racing with Rod Hall in my first Baja 1000. And I and driving all over the world, but my enthusiasm, if I could get back to that point of just tell the story, sometimes worked. And of course, depending on the publication or depending on what manufacturer I might want to grease that we race the Kia Sportage across Africa, I would have to give some material about the Kia Sportage. And I learned how to do that. So I didn't have any background in English that stuck out. I was an avid reader. My mom would not let my brother and I watch much TV at all. And so I did a lot of reading. I never thought of writing as a way that I would earn a living and see the world. And again, photography sort of really struck me as something that brought me joy but I never thought that the two combined would take me around the world. Right. No, that's, it's very important um, to, especially, you know, you can be talented one way or the other with, whether it's writing or with photography, but if you can do both, um, 
you know, you, you've got to, it's, it's a great start. What I try to tell people and what I do myself, like for our magazine or any writing I do is I just tell the story. I'm not worried about punctuation and, and sentence structure and all that. That's why Shelly's my editor. Um, you know, that's, okay. that's where she comes in, but I tell the story. She just makes it all come out the way it's supposed to. The, the storytelling is, is, to me, the most important part because that's what the reader is going to to latch onto. If it's right. too technical, or if it's you know they're they're not. I mean, there are some people that'll pick apart a story that you've written, and you know if if there's some way it you know typeset is wrong or whatever, or you know sentence structure is wrong, there'll always be that one that emails you in and say, "Oh, you made a mistake." You know what? It's they they didn't get it. You know, the the whole idea is what is the story? Of course, you want to be as accurate yeah. as possible. The photography, on the other hand, you can tell a whole story without words if you yeah. have great photography. Yeah. And my degree is in commercial photography and product advertising. But I started doing the photography because I didn't want to sit on the side of the road or out in the pasture or, you know, wherever I was drawing all day. So yeah. I would go and take the shot that I wanted and then I would get it, you know, get it processed and then do the drawings from there. And uh, I found out that I was better with the camera than I was with the drawings. So I dropped the pencils. <laughs> so you, you started off with the typewriter because that's all we had back then. We didn't have computers. Oh my gosh. How crazy is that? Um, my my journalism career started in, I think it was 1980, it was 80 or 80, I think it was 1981, and um, and it was, a, a, no, it was 1980, and then my automotive career began in 1988, but for all those years, I was a news shooter and I grew very fond of it uh, as a way to add it, it I didn't make a lot of money I um and I had I remember buying a a pastel of Canon AE1 camera gear at Sears and Roebuck because somebody would say to me uh, people would say oh what cameras do you use and where do you get them and over time I went on to have a lot of good camera gear and um, and then started to stop that when um, digital cameras were not the boon for me. They're great. But um, I will tell you that 90% of the time I use my cell phone um, for pictures and people die over that. But I, um, you know, I'm, when I'm, on the job in Saudi Arabia or um, anywhere in this country doing a four-wheel drive trip or test driving a new car, I find that probably 85% of the needs can be met with a cell phone, especially out in the field. Um, now, there, I'm not going to argue with people that just have stunning photos and carry a lot of gear on their back, but um, that's been the way that I've been able to sort of function. Right. And it's not, you know, it's not all that bad. The, like the, the iPhones, 
the the top of the line iPhone has a faster processor than almost all the cameras out there, unless you get into the multi thousand dollar bodies. So you know That's it's right. not it's not bad. <laughs> Yeah. You're giving up a little bit on the lens side, of course, but you know, that's unless you're shooting covers or, or murals, you know, that's the only time that, uh, that really you need to step up and have the great lens, you know, in, unless of course you're, you're doing the art, the really artsy stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and even shooting video last year, I shot some pretty fun and successful video in the middle of the um one of the days of the Dakar and I was media manager and helping manage a race team in Dakar and that had set up in a couple of different locations to capture the 9-11 coming through the desert and not only was I able to get some video that was pretty darn good quality but also the sound was great nice very good so then you you're shooting for the newspaper, writing stories, telling telling the stories. And how did it go from that kind of journalism style from news to magazine? Well, let me back up and um sure. for just one moment, I was a a staunch tomboy, I guess. I was going to say a bit of a tomboy and that's and it's a funny word to use because it's not used so much today. Um, but I had a brother a year younger who was such an adventurer. And he he always seemed to, to be my older brother. He was always the one saying, come on, let's sneak out of the house at night, which we did a whole bunch of. Or let's um, go swim in the quarry where we're not supposed to swim um, because it's dangerous. Let's go do those things. And so we did a lot of danger and adventure and let's catch frogs and bring them home for mom to cook in the frying pan. And um, during my teen years, he came home one day with a small on off road Suzuki, a little 175. And he, it had knobby tires and he said, this is for us. And we had previous to that, we'd been riding our bikes everywhere and riding them. I remember as fast as we could downhill. So I was always afraid of the downhill um, and had a spectacular crash one time. Um, but now we, now we moved to this small motorcycle and we were just really good at sharing things. And we lived at the base of a mountain and um, we would go up one of the um, fire road trails on this motorcycle and I remember doing that and riding through the woods on it and just being so enamored and but I'd get to the top of the mountain and I would panic and I don't know if it was from this bad uh bicycle crash um that was kind of a I, I have no idea but I did have a fear of going down things I had a fear of heights for a long time which can be difficult when you're off-road racing in places like over Mike Sky Ranch on the Baja 1000 right. when they're in the night when there's, well, it's easier to race in the night because you're looking at your headlamps most of the time. Follow those, not the cliff. But um, I remember getting to the top of the mountain and I would be panicked and I would, this is crazy. I would turn off the bike 
And I was even afraid to put it in neutral. And I would just lay on the handlebars and screech my way to the bottom until I was comfortable and then take off again. But I've always been fearless going up things, of course, which prevents or presents a problem. Um, and, And I had that happen. I was in Morocco a few years ago in 2015. I did the Gazelle Rally and my driving partner and I were so lost that I we couldn't see a, a bit of dust anywhere around us for great long distances. So I said, well, let's just get on top of this this mountain of sand or dirt here. It was hard packed, um, rocky, um, mud rock terrain. And I just went up it in a um, Mercedes-Benz Sprinter van. It was roll-caged and um, had crosswind mitigation. It was so darn much fun. And we got to the top, and um, we could see we were valleys away from where we should be. <laughs> Pardon me. And then all of a sudden, I had to go down. And it was quite precipitous. <laughs> it just reminded me, okay, and it's a good, it's a good thing a little um, maybe thing to repeat in life, especially when you're an off-roader, make sure you know your exit (laughs) before you get get on top of things. But so um, now fast forward, I was doing some news work. I would take my photos and won a couple of awards with the New England um, Press Association journalism awards and had a collegial group at the newspaper um, of folks who were like me and we all love photographing by day and getting called out for crazy things at night and um, I was approached by my good friend Peter McGillivray's mom came up to me when I was photographing at a um, meeting one night and said would you look at my son's photos. He's, I think Pete was 16 then or 17. And would you look at his photos? He really likes photographing, but his dad doesn't think that's a career. And I said, sure. And I had no idea. And she said, well, he, he has a scanner and he listens to what's going on and in our community and sometimes rides his bicycle to go to check out whatever's happening. And I saw Peter's photographs and I was blown away and not at the artistic quality, his news eye, but his artistic quality. And so for one year uh, before he went to college and he was a senior at the local high school, I would give him a ride to the newspaper in the morning and he would hitchhike out to the high school. And this is so important to my story because I just enjoyed helping him. And I can't really say that I mentored him. Um, I probably have used that word, but he knew what he was doing. He just needed a forum and he had work going to the Associated Press. And then he went off to college at BU School of Communications. He and I kept in touch. He met uh, Diane Nishigaya, the woman he would go on to marry, who was from California. And at the end of four years of school, Pete moved to California. We had kept in touch and we talked to news all the time. He worked for UPI in Boston and it was, we were friends, but it was one of our, one of the things that cemented the friendship was talking about 
photography and news. So Pete got out to California and it was the summer of 1988. And he called me and said, I've gone to work for a magazine called Four Wheeler. And he said it like that. And I, it, because it was not mainstream, we wouldn't, he wouldn't have said four wheeler. It, he had to enunciate. And then I said, what? And he said, yes, go to the guns and ammo section of Cumberland <laughs> Arms and look for the magazine. And I, he said, I couldn't get a job in news. And this man named John Stewart, one of the greats in our field, who was the editor of four wheeler had found Peter. And he said, John has offered me a job. Well, I looked at the cover of the magazine, Rich. Oh, my gosh. I thought Peter had gone to the devil. Um, he, <laughs> I couldn't. I'm, I've never said that, but I'll tell you, I couldn't figure it. There were trucks that were built up with, I don't know, that back in that day, 40-inch tires, 35 to 40-inch tires, which, but they were going through the air at the Bloomsburg Jeep Jamboree. And on the cover. And I thought, what the heck has happened to Peter? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I started flipping through the magazine and there were some vehicle review and a lot of ads for car, for parts, but I thought this is crazy. And then a month later, Peter called and said, John asked our team if we knew any women that might be um, that had to have a journalism background. People always think you just have to have a driving background. Um, and only if you're a full-time racer or top gear folks, I mean, you have to somehow pay back. And a lot of times it involves, as you said, photography, writing, both racing, co-driving. So I, Peter said, I told John about you and I got a phone call from John and he said, you know, tell me about yourself. And I said, well, I had this little on off road motorcycle and I landed up driving a Honda 50 to high school for my senior year. And um, when I was in Washington, D.C., and there were times when I got up on the sidewalk if there was a lot of traffic. So that was kind of four wheeling. Ha ha. <laughs> and, and John said, well, what I really want to know, Pete says you can photograph and you can write captions. You're a journalist. What I really want to know is how do you get along with people? And I, it was brilliant because as someone who's now been on many race teams and I've been on many Dakars, I've raced in two and um, um, I've been on many others. The last two years I was with a team. When you're gone for uh, a race like the Baja 1000 and you're prepping for it and you're doing it and you're cleaning up from it. And especially when you're on longer races like the Gazelle Rally or the Camel Trophies and the Dakars, getting along with your teammates, getting along with people is everything. And I've longed to be a trainer of off-road racers and folks that want to be competitive to share some of the tips. And that is one people forget that. And I'm sure you know it. If you're in the middle of the Dakar and you've had a fight with quarrel with your co-driver, 
you might just leave them at the halfway point. And I saw that happen on a $250,000 budget. One walked away, drove away with the vehicle and his wife and left the other person behind. And I've seen guys fighting and had their vehicle go belly up and wondered, hmm, did they stop talking? And then maybe the co-driver didn't say, you know, there's a series of bumps here or whatever obstacle. You know, I'm sure people are calling out the big stuff, but um, being a good teammate is so important. And John asked me and I said, I consider myself really excellent in that arena. And so I went out in 1988 in September for the, my first four-wheeler of the year. And I'm on the cover of the 1989 January four-wheeler issue going through the air in the winning vehicle, which was an 89 uh, Range Rover. And I'm with Ken Van, Von Holmet at the wheel. And I have a big open mouth, like, what the heck? Because we were going through the air and I'd never been in a vehicle off the ground like that. <laughs> so now I've been in <laughs> many, it's funny, I count the number of race miles, I count the number of expedition miles, but I've never counted what might be the time aloft in a in a vehicle. But yeah, that's some of the crazy story that leads up. And I don't want to run on, but I don't want to forget one really important ingredient. In 1985, I developed an upper respiratory illness that I knew from the get-go was not a regular cold or bronchitis. I knew there was something pretty serious about it, just the way that it hit me with a vengeance. And I spent eight days either going to the doctor or calling the doctor, and I just kept getting higher prescription doses of penicillin. And one night at two in the morning when I called and said, I'm not sleeping, I haven't slept for two days, I'm in a lot of pain, I was told, uh, do you have any whiskey in the house? Put some sugar in, some honey and some whiskey. Long story short, on day nine, uh, I got to the hospital and I'm sure by now most people have heard of autoimmune illnesses that shut your body down. And many people die at that point. And my body was shutting down. After eight days, this upper respiratory illness was, the, was a, uh, sort of a precursor. It was part and parcel of a dormant autoimmune illness. And when I got to the hospital, I was told your organs are shutting down. We don't know if we can save you. And that was pretty startling. I knew I was sick, but I had no idea. And I had, by that point, I had uh, sores in, on my body and swelling. And I spent five days in the hospital in most of that time in isolation, quarantine, in a lot of pain. And finally, without all the details, but fi uh, finally someone figured out that it was a rare, at that time, autoimmune illness. And um, what's important about that story is that it was November and I was looking out at a gray November snow sky from my hospital bedroom where 
I was in isolation. Even the doctors wouldn't come into the room because they didn't know what I had. And I, as I said, I was quarantined. It was a really frightening and painful time. And, um, and my daughter was nine at the time. So I looked up on that day and I saw the mountains and I thought, wow, I've been told by a doctor that came on day four that he thought that he was going to take some biopsies. He thought that he could peg this illness and he'd be back actually in two days. So I was there for six. And he said, one of the things I think you have is terminal. There's nothing we can do. The other is something that we can put you on a steroid and you'll, you should be well in four to six weeks. Well, it took a year. But when I looked out that window and I looked at the mountains, I thought, wow, I've never been further west than South Dakota in this country. I've never been out of the country. I grew up reading National Geographic, and I always thought that I'd be able to see the world somehow. And I prayed two prayers. The first one was to see my daughter graduate from high school. And the other prayer was that I would see the world before I died. And I began to think, could I be a travel writer and photographer? And so it was three years later. It took me a year to get well enough to work full time. And it was three years later when Peter said, um, you have this opportunity. John invited me to California. I'd never been to California. And when I saw Death Valley and we went four-wheeling there, when I we went to Big Bear Lake and Arrowhead and we went four-wheeling there, I couldn't believe what I saw. And I couldn't believe what the vehicles did. I thought some at some points, I think it was the Deep Creek Trail where we stopped for lunch. I thought people are just joshing me here. We're not going to go up that. They're saying, yeah, after lunch, Sue, we're going to climb up those rocks. And I thought, yeah, right. Well, we did. And so what was wonderful for me was that I began a career and I took every opportunity. It was part-time at first to see the world before I died. And I'm still, that was 30, it was 1988. That was 34 years ago. Um, I just began to put my foot in further and further into any adventure I could get trained for and sign up for. But um, I'll tell you at another point about driving through the pages of National Geographic. Wow. That's it's uh, quite a story. And I, I can understand the, the concern with the illness, and I'm glad that you got over that. And that all led to the, the push to, to travel and to do what you, what you've done. So let's talk about some of those, those places and things and, you know, that you've seen and been. Well, I'm a small town girl and I came from a middle-class family and I would have not had the means. I wouldn't have had the money um, to see the world without a pocketbook to do so. So journalism and off-roading have become that for me, as I've said. I'm 
I'm so fortunate because I was really impassioned, but also along the way, after Peter helped me get to four wheeler and John Stewart took me under his wing, I was working with folks like Stu Bourdon, Rick Payway, and a number of other, um, David Freiberger was on one of our teams, men that guys that are great today in the off-road business, Greg Whale, um, Mark Williams, <laughs> Greg and Mark were on my first four-wheeler with, and Stu Bourdon with um, Peter. And what also is so important to say, I have found by and large, almost without exception, I found the men in this career really have become my friends very quickly and really gentlemen and who have wanted to help me. And so I began to say, look, um, obviously, I don't know what I'm doing here, but um, I, I said to John Stewart, I've always wanted to go to Alaska. Would you buy a story if I go there next summer? like on fly fishing and four wheeling, for example. And he said, sure, I'll give you $500. And I said, no way, that's great. So I went to Alaska the next summer and set up a four wheel drive trip with the Anchorage four wheel drive um, group and their club. And I went out with 11 guys into the wilderness. And I said, guys, I don't go into the wilderness with 11 guys. We're going to have to figure out, can we pick up a couple, could you get your wives? Can we pick up a couple women along the way? And they said, oh, we just don't think about that here. It's what it is. But um, so that began the element of travel adventure. The next year, I had a cousin living in Alaska. The next year, I went back and did goal panning and four-wheeling. And I began to know a group of people in Alaska some of whom are, are still my friends today, that I began to do adventures with. And so that was one element. And important to say for people who might listen to this podcast or think, oh, Sue's in the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. Um, I'm not a racer and I don't have the money to travel the world. The, what turned me on just as much and still does today is just doing an adventure with a four-wheel drive vehicle and the people that I'm doing it with. And so now we'll go into the early 90s and I'm learning as much as I can. Stu Bourdon had come to visit me. He was going to do a shoot near here. And we went off on a trail by ourselves in the woods in Charlemont. And we ran into this guy named Mark Smith. And Mark uh, watched me drive through a really gnarly patch with mud holes and stumps and that required a little bit of technical driving. I had to keep up my speed, but manage to have control of the vehicle. And Mark was really impressed with the way that I drove it. And would anyone who would know him would know he would then say to me, You're, you didn't do too bad for a girl, um, which was one of his favorite things to say. Um, to women, but he, we became friends and I then became, began to do a couple of the Jeep Jamborees. And um, the next thing I, I said to Mark, um, I would really like to do this thing called Camel Trophy. And Peter had 
gone on two camel trophies. Other couple other people, because I was reading the magazines, had gone. And I said, I want to do it, but women aren't going at this point. And he said, Mark said, I'll introduce you to Tom Collins. And Tom, for people who know him, was Mr. Camel Trophy for the U.S. team for years and and noted four-wheel drive trainer for Land Rover. He did some Baja racing for Jeep. So Tom introduced me to, um, I'm sorry, Mark Smith introduced me to Tom Collins. And Tom said in 1994, we're not letting women try out this year. Don't complain about us too loudly, but we will next year. So at the same time, I said to Mark, well, I want more. I not only want to learn about how to do slow speed, extreme slow speed driving, I'd like to learn how to do off-road racing. I'd like to learn how to do fast off-road driving. So Mark said, okay, I'll introduce you to Rod Hall. So in 1995, I was with, Mark had introduced me to Tom Collins. I went to the Camel Trophy tryouts in Grand Junction, Colorado. And uh, out of nine journalists, I earned a seat. There were two of us that got seats that year. I was with Daphne Green and Jim Sweat, who many people know. They went on to become Land Rover experts and did a lot of four-wheel drive training and trips around the world. And we went to Central America to Mundo Maya and in the summer that year. And it was so, so many different things. Shocking right. <laughs> um, at how hard it was. There was very little mud, but the heat went over well over 120 degrees with 100% humidity. Um, frightening because there were scorpions and spiders of great renown on the ground. Like sometimes tarantulas when it would rain would be all over the ground in our campsite. And I thought I would think I was going to die. I was always afraid of spiders. Um, and so I started sleeping in a hammock so I could stay away from them, but you still have to get out of that hammock sometimes even in the night. So I used to call it the Oreo because I had a top over my hammock. I had a cover and then the cover below me and above me, but I was the sandwich in the middle and sometimes had to slip out of that. But, and at the same time, so that was my first camel trophy. I went on to do four camel trophies. Um, The following year I went to Borneo and it was unheard of for a journalist to go for more than one really um, and I went to Borneo for a month. Another level of, oh my gosh, this mud has sucked my boots off. My wellies that came up to my, just below my knee, they're in the mud below me. That's how deep the mud was. And we are building bridges to go across ravines with sand, sand ladders and ropes and then one person would go in the vehicle because we were afraid if the vehicle went over that was one of our techniques don't put everyone in um and just incredible adventures borneo was fascinating and i look back at those times and they were kind of um the 
they were the greening of the green Sioux me became brown with the mud and the world around me. And and then the the next year I went to Mon, uh, Mongolia and spent almost a well a month in Mongolia actually I think about six weeks in total in Mongolia, which was a fascinating country. And then I began to do Land Rover treks and Land Rover recce's, like to Bolivia with Land Rover to do a recce for one of their events and to Global Four G4 Challenge to go to Australia. Um, and so my Land Rover career included the camel trophies, some of the recce's and the events. And also I became good friends with Bill Baker, another name for so many. And I, at the end of the day, because of my friendship with Bill, I probably went to about 40 countries with Land Rover and would do drives like from London to Turkey in a vehicle that was going around the world. And so I'd nab another, you know, 11 countries and go to Jordan on a thousand mile trip. And that goes back to what I was saying is sometimes people think of folks from the off-road motorsports hall of fame as racers only. Um, and that, you know, that it's all about going fast or climbing rocks. It can be so many different things, but we back up to 1995 and Mar was with Mark Smith in Uray, Colorado on another adventure, my first of many there. And my fear of heights was about owning me going over um, Imogene and some of the high mountain passes, which as you know, have great exposure if you go over. Um, so they're, they're death defying for sure. But Mark then drove me um, back with him and called up Rod Hall, and I went back on his way to go to um, back to Placerville. And he dropped me off in Reno. He called Mark, and, uh, called Rod Hall rather, and Rod said, "Sure, you can do the Baja 1000 with me." And oh, you want to do a story? Okay, that's great. And you want to learn how to off-road race? Okay. Well, you come out to Reno, and I'll show you how we do it. And at that time. <laughs> Rod was so generous. Always, Rod said, "I'll, um, you know, take you to my place. I've got a training grounds." And he taught me a lot, some very different tips from what I had learned from my Camel Trophy that year, and what I learned over many years of off-road racing. So I've been off-road racing since 1995. What I learned is that they're certainly similar but they're very different. Um, oh, oh, there are different techniques. And, um, you know, one similar mantra is you have to know how to, um, you have to go slow to go fast. And a lot of people will use that. But Tom Collins used to say, especially in the jungles, um, you are a turtle and your vehicle is the shell on your back protect it, protect it, protect it. And I learned a lot of respect for how to drive a vehicle. I've never really, I've been involved in a 
crash off-roading. I wasn't at the wheel, but I've never, I've been so fortunate that I haven't crashed and I just have to, I've driven more than 3000 vehicles now. Um, so I am very fortunate, but I also feel that some of the training has just helped me keep the wheels out from under me and uh, I mean, keep the wheels under me and know when to go fast and know when to go slow. That's important. That absolutely is. And it depends on the style and what you're doing. I, I see that a lot with snow wheeling. I, I get, mm-hmm. as an event promoter, you know, my summers and springs and falls are typically pretty tied up with, with work, but the snow, the winter time was when I always used to be able to get to go wheeling. So I've wheeled, in lots of parts of the country in the in the wintertime in the snow. And the snow is different everywhere. And oh, yeah. it's just like sand. You have to drive it. Each each place you drive is is going to be different and you different styles. Everybody, so many people think you just have to bomb through snow. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I've spent a lot of time in Alaska and um, even had a one-room um, cabin with no running water that I lived in for three months a few years ago and did a lot of Iditarod dog training with um, sled dog training with a friend of mine. And so I went to 50 below with her sometimes. And so we had a lot of snow and snow conditions. Um, and by the way, I went to Prudhoe Bay on a drive in 1995 with Ford and, um, and Motor Week TV. And we hit temperatures of 80 below. I'll never Ugh. forget that. It that was cold. I can handle 30 below really well with the right clothing, really well. But 50 gets tough and you really need to protect your skin. 80, you need to eat all the time and drink all the time. But like as you said, I have driven in um the Sahara Desert in a number of locations, the Atacama Desert, a lot of snow in different places, Wyoming snow, Alaska snow, New England snow. And, um, it's very, it's very interesting because sometimes I will say to people that are just starting sand driving, I was telling some rebel rally gals this year, um, when I was giving them driving tips, think about it like snow and get your, get your footing. But, um, and then figure out what kind of speed you can carry. And again, when to go slow and when to speed up. But as you know, one thing that happens with sand and dunes and heat in the morning, you have a much harder pack sand. And then in the hot spots or in the afternoon, that same sand, when it's warm, you're going to sink into more. And we can have the same thing with snow, right? Yep. Absolutely. So I, so I started both ends of the spectrum and I did as much of each as I could. And I made a name for myself while I was having fun. Some of it, to be honest with you, um, was I did a lot of adventure and I, my name got out there. I was writing from many different publications, newspapers. I had a column called um, Get Off the Road that went to 200 newspapers at one time. And I had a lot of, um, 
I started to write for different magazines, but it was my, it was my friends that made a tremendous difference. And then I raced with Darren Skilton in 1999 in the Parables Town 250. Okay. And that, that was a marker because, and we were in a Kia Sportage because Darren, I didn't know Darren, um, Christine Overstreet, who was working for Kia at the time, got the two of us together and she was looking for publicity. But I had done a little bit of off-roading with, with Rod and um, my first Baja 1000, which I just skipped over. We'll have to go back to that. But I, I um, all of a sudden, I was hooked up with Darren and a different world opened up. And um, I I want to tell you my story of Darren, but I realized I'd like to go back and tell you what it was like to show up for the Baja 1000 and Rod Hall and his Hummer H1. I had to prove to Rod that I could get those mammoth tires. I could get one in the event that we had a flat off and get it back on the spindle on the back of the truck. And let me tell you, that was a lot of work. And as you know, it's not just lifting it, it's technique on how to lift it and get it up. But Rod and I were going to do the second half of the drive. And um, the truck was going to be brought to us in San Felipe. And we got there and we got word that the Hummer was down and it was in a dry wash and they had run out of fuel. And so the guys chasing the truck had to go in and fuel it and it was going to be late. And I remember looking over at Rod in this hotel room and thinking, oh my gosh, I am with the winningest racer of the Baja 1000 and we're not going to win. By the time that truck got there, we were two hours down. And I, I remember being a little sort of dismayed, a little sad, because I thought, and Rod not being, he wasn't thrown by it at all. I mean, honestly, not thrown by it at all. And I kept saying, you know, are, are you doing okay? Said, ah, yeah, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. Don't worry. <laughs> I thought, we're two hours down. Um, so I got in the Hummer with him and we got in at, um, got in at midnight and I had no idea what to expect, even though I'd been through some camel trophies, that was not high speed. And certainly there were times that were jarring. We took off over the whoops as coming out of San Felipe and I couldn't believe how painful it was. It was like being in a pickup truck and ramming into a rock or a couch every 20 seconds for a period of time and then 30 seconds and then 50 seconds as the whoops changed. I couldn't believe and I thought I have no idea why anyone would find this fun. This will do me in. I'm done. I'm, when I'm finished with this ride, I'm done. <laughs> well, little did I know, I learned so much. The, the other thing that started to happen was 
now we're two hours behind. People would go by us. And I would think, Rod, what are you doing? People are going by us. And he would look at me and cast his eyes in this wonderful spirited way. He was, he was so good natured and fun and funny. He would say to me, they're going by us. They're going by us now, but pretty soon we'll be going by them. And half an hour down the track or an hour down the track, we'd go by that person and they'd be pulled off fixing something or, and I'd think, wow, because sometimes they were driving faster or too fast. But I, one of, other than going over the finish line in first place on that race, what I'll always remember is that Rod had trained me the night before and he said, we're going to be running up the beach of the Pacific coast as the sun comes up in the morning and we're going to have a cup of coffee. And I said, what? <laughs> he said, yep, I'm going to train you right now how to have it. And you're going to keep the coffee in your race suit pocket overnight. And I said, okay. And he said, here's the coffee. And it was a little caffeine. Here's one for you. And here's one for me. And you put that in your pocket. And when the sun comes up, I'm going to say, Sumi, let's have a cup of coffee. And lo and behold, he did. And he, he made me practice how he was going to put his hand out and say, got it. And I put that in and he'd say, okay, now let's have our cup of coffee. And I will never forget how that moment in time where the whoops and the pain, the two hours down, any the world went away. And it was magical to be driving up the Pacific beach as the sun came up in the morning with someone who had won so many races and was in to the joy of it. Not just let's slam up the beach and cut people off. Um, so that was my first off-road race, obviously set the stage. And um, I did a couple other off-road adventures and races. And then I was asked to go with Darren Skilton and we did the Tarblestown 250. We broke down in the middle of, we got stuck in a um, dry wash that someone sent us into and we got horribly stuck and Darren was pretty frustrated. And I just said, oh, you know, hey, let me jump out and see if I can find some rocks or whatever. And was very trying to be very encouraging. We got out of that. And then in the middle of the night, and it was freezing cold as the desert can be. We, um, I, I believe it was a, I'm trying to think it was a December, it was a December race. And um, we were so cold with a fuel line. Um, there was a leak in a fuel line. And so Darren had to call. Um, we couldn't have help on the course. He had to make calls and our guys had to send someone in who was still running to bring us fuel. And it was really cold. And 
we had fuel all over our hands as we tried to fix things. And Darren looked at me and he said, look, I'm going to get you a ride out of here. Um, is this is no fun. And I said, Oh, contraire, I'm not leaving. This is fun. Um, I'm cold and I wish we weren't in this predicament, but I'm not leaving. And at the end of that race, Darren, I had said to Darren, what's your next move? And he said, I would like to do the Dakar. And I said to him, you're going to think I'm crazy because I'm a baby in the babe in the woods with this, but I'd love to do the Dakar myself, to be honest with you. And he called me a month later and said, you know, I liked your spunk. I liked your enthusiasm. I liked the fact that you didn't get in the next race car that came through that could fit you in it and take off on me. And would you like to do the deck car with me? So I did my first deck car in 2000, the following year with Darren. Darren and I, I was his navigator, co-pilot, as they say in deck car speak. And our second car was driven by the famous Kurt LeDuc, who's also an off-road Hall of Famer. Um, and we drove from, we started at the Eiffel Tower. It, um, it was set up in honor of the millennium to start in Paris as the Paris Dakar once did. And we went all the way to the pyramids of Egypt we put our cars on the boat at the port of La Havre, and then we started formally in Dakar, Senegal. And um, that was an adventure you can read in one of my books. And when I do the big book, it will be one of the top adventures because partway across Africa, there was a terrorist threat. As we approached the Sahara, we were at the beginning of the Sahara. We were in Niamey, Niger. And the French Foreign Ministry and the CIA uncovered a plot of 350 men hiding out that were Islamic dissident terrorists, and they wanted to do harm to us. And why? To make a political statement. And they had been marauding and murdering, so it was credible. And we had to be airlifted from... Niamey, Niger, where we hold up for four days, all of our race cars, helicopters, cooking gear, personal gear, um, and all of us were airlifted over the course of two days of Russian Antonov and 747s to Libya for safety. Wow. So, um, yeah, I... That's been one of my greatest adventures. Um, was it frightening to land at a airbase in Sabah, Libya? Yes. And there were men in green berets with AK-47s that saw us off the airplane. And I was pretty panicked that night that we slept at that military base on the ground. Um, and we then finished our drive. And I think everyone on that Dakar cried when we saw on the skyline, we saw the pyramids of Egypt. Um, and I was just with Kurt LeDuc at this year's Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame dinner. And we told that story again and we cried. <laughs> it was quite an adventure, to say the least. 
the, yeah, I, I can't even imagine something like that. I mean, you know, the, uh, yeah, the stress that that must be when, when the military shows up to escort you because of the, 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 the danger. And, and, you know, we were going to go through a section of Libya on our way to Egypt, but it would not have been at a military air base. And the Dakar organizers had worked that all out so that there were private encampments. This was a very different thing. And it was a credible terrorist threat. It came at a cost of $15 million to lift, airlift us. And my greatest worry was that my family back home would hear. And that's often a worry for me. And I think for some of us that do adventures, um, as you know, Chris Collard, who's also in the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame, is a dear friend. I helped champion him with, along with Mark Smith to get in. And Chris is one of the greater, greatest four-wheel drive adventurers. I encouraged him to come in, stop his day job and come into this career. Um, because he was so good at what he did, he had much greater background when he came in than I did. And he was a photographer, but, you know, Chris and I've talked about it. We did an adventure a couple of years ago across Australia. And I remember him calling his wife, Susie in Placerville from, uh, Birdsville as we headed out into the great Simpson desert with some dangers. And he wouldn't be able to speak to Susie for, I believe it was five days then. Um, but I was looking at a post that he just posted on his trip to Antarctica. And, you know, I think in the midst of some of the great adventures, one of the hardest things for me, one of the fears has been not about my safety, although I sure care about it, and the safety of my teammates, but really about the the worry for people back home. And if they hear that I'm in a location, I've been in a few of them where there's been something going on that's a danger. Um, and I've certainly had some few little terrorist events as part of my four-wheeling career because I've put myself out and I've now been to 72 countries. And as you know, many of us that have been Baja racers, both the 1000 or in the Mexican 1000, you know, there, there can be some once in a while, there can be a few tough things that direction. Mostly it's been great. Um, I I've had a few moments where that have been a little hair raising more so in the early days when there would be a whole dug to try to literally trip somebody up. Um, but these days the course has been pretty clear. Um, but I remember training one time and coming across an airplane in the middle of nowhere that had landed somewhere in the sand and it, and a few guys, and it sure was a bit of a drug running operation, but I don't want people to be afraid of going to the Baja um, because it's a wonderful place filled with wonderful people. But, you know, if you put yourself out um, and you start to travel the world, um, I've been in Saudi Arabia two and a half months in the last two and a half years. 
and people are really worried about that. And then I have tried to quell their worries and say, we, we now live with a higher level of danger in our own country, which is, which is sad to say. And sometimes uh, the best place we can be is in the backcountry four-wheeling, right? Absolutely. I try to stay out of cities anymore. I do as well. I do as well. I definitely, well, I've learned a lot. Um, my camel trophy years taught me a lot of survival skills training, um, how to put a vehicle fire out, how to um, treat a teammate that has had a machete go wound, deep gash in their leg or uh, other various things that we've come across. Um, I, I like being having the first aid and survival skills training for myself and for others. But um, some of that training um, has also helped me to think about what to do when I'm in Charles de Gaulle, the Paris airport and think, okay, I've even had some handgun training. What happens if something happens right now? What is my, what do I want? to do, um, to keep myself safe. And then who do I want to save if I want to make that decision? Um, and how do I do that? So I've often tried to complement four wheeling without in any way taking anything from track races. A lot of people in my early years would say, you're just tearing up the the road, you know, you're just tearing up the backcountry. What what value is that? And I learned, and and I was on the tread lightly board of directors at one time. Um, and I remember, you know, I came up with this notion that no one criticized the Indy 500. It was a test bed. It is a test bed for fuels and lubricants and tires, and what I started to say to people was my first off-road race with Rod Hall, we were testing high intensity discharge lights and night vision. Those quickly became um, available as an option or standard on high-end vehicles. And we wouldn't even, you know, we don't even really talk about those necessarily today because they're so integrated. And what I tell people all the time is off-road racing is a test bed for many manufacturers and many who support many racers. Um, and for many um, aftermarket companies and folks who want to put their vehicles through the test. But the other thing I like to tell people is you have a crash driving the Indy 500 you have an ambulance pretty close by, really close by, cool. and maybe a helicopter that's going to pick you up and get you to help as quickly as, as they can. When you're off-road racing, your fellow racers and sometimes folks along a track, or if you're in the middle of a desert, your fellow racers are going to be the first ones there and your teammate, if your teammate is fine. And I really am very 
proud, I guess I would say, of taking the years to learn the skills and taking like frostbite and hypothermia classes and igloo building when I was going to fly through the Iditarod, um, literally um, took that as a class. Um, um, but to be prepared and to not be a liability, um, and, and we do know we, we lose people, which is always just so tragic. Um, but we lose a lot of people on the highway and in their everyday life. And many of us, including me would say, if I'm going to go, let that be the way and the day that I'm out on some great adventure. I would, yes, I I think that that we all, or most of us would like to, if if it's going to end, end doing what you love to do. Um, I think that as a racer, somebody in the vehicle strapped in, especially in a vehicle that is, you know, gone through tech or built properly, the the likelihood is less. It's, you know, there's always that chance. Um, you know, we had Zandy Williams from, uh, from Ultra 4, and he raced dirt right as well with us, who passed away at Crandon this year. But you know, it, it you just never know when something like that's going to happen. Um, one one wrong bounce or land, you know, impact. But typically, once you're in the car, you're the safest. Down in Baja, the biggest concern I always have is driving the highways while you're chasing the race. Or, you know, I mean, and it doesn't matter if you're with a team or you're a spectator or your media. You're still following the team as it, uh, the teams as they go down the course, and that's where that's where most of the accidents happen. You're absolutely right, and I heard that. And in my six Baja One Thousands, I the only accident in a Baja was with um, Darren Skilton's brother Gavin, who I believe fell asleep at the wheel in the middle of the night and just drifted and had had a crash and survived it well, but with some injury. Um, and that's also as, you know, there, but for the great grace of God, go we who are racing. And we have, I have so much respect for our chase teams, um, for having been both a driver and co-driver for everyone who is associated with the race, because if you're doing a race like the Baja 1000 nonstop, people are staged throughout the course. The roads can be dangerous. They're poorly lit. They're off camber. Um, There are people who come at you in the night, whether you're racing or on the road, as you know, with one headlight instead of two, and you don't know which one it is. Um, It can be so it can be dangerous. And as you know, um, we lost another young man this year, um, just, um, who was a photographer and that can happen. Um, it was just so tragic. He was a young man and he was, and I thought of all of us and I reached out to Barbara Rainey right away. And I said, Barbara, 
do you know if it's any of our folks? And I said, it doesn't matter who it is. I just want to know for all the people I know and love, which included you and Chris and many other, John Reddy and many other people. And then I realized a life is a life. And this young man was, I believe, 21. And he was in a little photo tent to the side of the track. And so um, that was just so tragic. Um, but as, as you know, I mean, it happens on the way to the race. It happens for all of us on the road um, as well in our everyday lives. So, but I, um, back to getting me closer to home here to today, I began to um, do some more adventures. I was invited on record-setting drives across Australia in a vehicle that was going around the world. I did the Australia leg in a Ford Focus um, and um, just a variety of things. As I said, you know, going to 80 below in a 1995 Ford Explorer and um, the Land Rover Discovery that went around the world. I drove that um, and a record setting drive with some folks that were raising money for Parkinson's research. I drove from Singapore to Bangkok and that was very meaningful for me. We started at the Parkinson's Institute in the U S and ended there. I only did the one section with them. And, um, we had a little episode that I, I won't go into, but just to say the, we were in badged cars and the guys, some of the guys on the expedition went to a place where was um no trespass don't do that folks and um there were some folks that appropriately took issue and shotguns above and below their feet <laughs> um and um you know just many different experiences and episodes but back to the parkinson's raising money for parkinson's research i really enjoy seeing what happens in our world where uh, with the Baja 1000 and Mexico, lots of folks have um, have donated money and help build missions and help build schools. Um, I know Walker Evans does some and um, oh, um, Cameron Steele, Cameron Steele and Ivan. Ivan Stewart has a school as well. Thanks. I mean, and again, these are, it's fun to be coming up with these names because these are all Ormhoff inductees. So it's really another whole aspect to off-roading. Um, and all of a sudden I'd done a bunch of this and that. And I was nominated by Mark Smith to um, become an inductee into the Offroad Motorsports Hall of Fame in 2007, which was before I had my Dakar win that was so incredible, which was 2011. But Ormhoff inducted me as a pioneer in the field of journalism. And what that meant was my my journalistic career, being a writer and photographer, you know, starting out with a Sears Canon camera pack um, and typing on a typewriter 
had now taken me, my vigor, my illness, which um, motivated me to try to see the world before I died, and all the help, all the hands of men that held me up when I was inducted in to the to Ormhoff, that night I could barely contain myself to speak because I realized so many men had put me on their shoulders and carried me forward to that point. And that because of being a woman, I got some rides because of my vigor and the things I had done, but also sometimes having a woman on the team for some manufacturers started to have a bit of a ring to it or play to it. And so many men were just really happy to champion me and teach me even when I knew nothing. Um, And when I stood there the night that I was inducted, I was overwhelmed by the fact that 90% of those men and maybe more would never be in the off-road motorsports hall of fame. And that I was not because I was better than them. Some were so much more talented than me and different arenas, but that I had taken on this career and had learned how to off-road race and learn how to do camel trophies and had now done record setting drives. But really the value to Ormhoff was also that I publicized it. And I think of, you know, the Gene Calvin and the early dusty times and many of the ways that the word got out and all the different roles that people play from advocacy to um, all the different motorsports. But I'm so appreciative that Ormhoff at that point rewarded me for my journalism career in the way that it dovetailed with off-roading. And I then went on, um, I had made up my mind when I did my first Dakar that I wanted to be the driver of record. And that became a goal for me. And I um, went to the Dakar, the last Dakar in um, sort of on the European continent at that point it was starting in Portugal and it was going to end in um it was going to go through Mauritania and end in Dakar and I I went the year before with um or had gone with Mitsubishi Motorsports thought of setting up a all-women's off-roading team and realized if I did that I'd be spending at least half of my year working with manufacturers and I wanted to just keep on with the wide adventure swath that I was on. And then I decided that I wanted to throw my hat into the ring. And I went to the Portugal Dakar as a um, little bit of a support driver for VW. And as you might remember, the Portugal Dakar start for Dakar was also disrupted. And that was a year that didn't go off the start because there were nine people killed um, in Mauritania, a family of five French folks picnicking on the side of the road and four Mauritania military as a threat to uh, Dakar coming through 
Mauritania. And that was Al-Qaeda. Um, and then that's the derivation or how the origin of how the Dakar the following year moved to South America. I went back in 2010 and with VW and got to see the terrain of South America from um, Buenos Aires over to the ocean in Chile through the Atacama Desert. And I decided that I would go back the following year if I could find a way and to be the driver of record. And I hooked up with Ford and was able to get a um, 2010 Raptor. It was a V6, um, which was really great because the fuel economy not having the eight was was something that was good. Um, and I, after sort of casting my net a little bit, I landed up with Darren Skilton again, who said that he would co-drive with me and he would also be our team manager. And he very quickly and thoughtfully took over the reins of helping steer it. Chris Collard became our media manager and came with us. Troy Johnson of the Fab School, who's someone I love to give a shout out to. He had been with us on our 2000 deck car. He came along with um, one of the other guys at the shop, James, whose last name I'm forgetting. But we went um, in 2011 and um, we were the last vehicle standing in our class. And so we were winners. I got to take home driver of record. And one of the things I love to say is that I beat Robbie Gordon. Um, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> because Robbie was competing that year and he had a really difficult thing happen. He broke down before on day six, before the start of that section. And he waited for his part to come. And by the time he did, he had timed out. And so the last half, the last six days of the 2011 Dakar, Darren and I were the only two in the running. And if you think that's easy, it is not because it's yours to lose on your nickel. Right. <laughs> and, you know, um, and we had some tough times and you can't time out. You've got to go off the start at your start time and you have to be in in time before it to uh, refuel and yourself and your vehicle and get mechanic work done and go, in my case, I had to go to the medical tent the night that we spent the night out. Um, um, I had a little hole that had been rubbed, uh, rubbed skin off my back from my Hans device, believe it or not. Um, and so we, we went across the finish line first and um, Darren and I shared the driving I, um, Darren is not yet in the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame. He might very well get there because I think you might have heard this year, just recently, the news that his Sonora rally is now going to be on the, um, on the Dakar circuit. And he has really, he's been an off-road racer for many years. He's done a number of Dakars and he's now made the Sonora, he's put a, a tent peg in the sand with a Sonora rally. Um, so 
I, Darren and I went, we had a great team. Again, Chris Carlard was documenting the whole thing. And I, um, it was one of the finest days of my life. I felt so fortunate, so blessed, so fortunate. We went over the the podium with a, a broken suspension mount. Uh, and um, it, it was just an incredible experience. Um, and I've done only a bit of racing since. Um, I did the gazelle rally and I quickly learned on during the prologue, it's not my kind of competition. I keep getting asked by my friend, Emily Miller to do the rebel rally. And I keep saying, Emily, <laughs> I did the gazelle rally and I was lost eight out of nine days. with my. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. If you do the rebel and you get lost, you get, you get me. Cause that's my oh. job is to come sweep. Oh, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> in that up. case, in that case, that's not how I want to see you. No, it's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I yeah. always tell all the ladies, you want to see me first thing in the morning, because I'm typically the first green checkpoint, and then you do not want to see me the rest of the day. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, um, the Gazelle Rally in Morocco. At the end of the day, I was with Shannon. Marshner from who worked for Mercedes Benz and she was my navigator and we were just lost every day for eight eight of the nine days and Emily would just um ah she would frown she'd pull her hair out night after night we were so late that we couldn't the food tent would have like uh, maybe croissants left um and I was too tired to shower I just go to bed in my my suit race suit and Oh my gosh. It was, but the last day we were the first in the, what was called the newcomers class. Shannon and I finally got it. And, but I sort of vowed that I would never do it again. I like going fast. I like racing. I mean, it's not, as you know, when you're racing, you still have to know where you're going Yes, and scroll through ray points. And I do want to go, speaking of waypoints, I want to go back to Robbie Gordon. I, Robbie was such a, and still is, was such a hero at the, in the Dakar circuit. And when I did the 2010 Dakar, oh my gosh, the crowds were fawning over him. I remember him going over the start in Buenos Aires. I do remember him going over the start and then backing up after he was announced and just torquing on full power and putting his vehicle in the air right off the podium. And I thought, Oh my gosh, you've got 10,000 miles to go here. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> He's a showman. <laughs> he is a showman. But anyway, um, I, um, landed up finishing and Robbie didn't. And so I would jokingly say I beat Robbie, but I would always say, look, Robbie is a, far better racer than I am. Robbie beats himself. I, I really, at the end of the day, I couldn't beat him, but in 2000, I'm going to say 16 and seven, 17 and 18, I worked with Amy Lerner during the Mexican 1000, um, and, um, and the Baja 1000 to, um, on a movie on Rod Hall. 
And he finished, Rod finished his 50th Baja 1000 on his 80th birthday. A lot of tears there. He was in a wheelchair by that point, as you probably know. Um, But um, I also, I was in the car with Rod for a little bit. I was in the car with Shelby Hall for a little bit. And I had some downtime where I wasn't with the film crew and I went out and on both of those years rode with Robbie. The first time I was going to get 50 miles with Robbie, I went to him and said, Hey, can I get in the first section, go 50 miles with you? I'd love to do that. And he said, sure. And we got to the, um, to the checkpoint. And I think it was Kellen. who was his Walsh, who was his co-driver at that point. I think, and, wasn't there yet. Robbie just blew through the time. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? You're really good. You want to go the rest of the way? And I was with him for 500 miles that day. And I did some praying. (laughs) I (laughs) I think I am kidding. Let me tell you, I also had to say what I learned was Native Americans would embrace the day that they died and say, this is a fine day to die. And I, I said things like that because Robbie would say to me, have you ever gone this fast at 130? And I said, yes, I've driven that fast on off-road. Have you gone this fast at 135? And then we got into the 140s. And I said, no, no, I haven't. And it was both true, but I also felt like I don't want to go faster right now. <laughs> We were in his Gordini. Um, So I and I rode with him uh, the next year for another. I can't remember. I think it was 300 miles. And I I'm very fond of Robbie. I respect him a lot and um, that he put on his stadium truck racing um, and initiated some things. He's a, he's just, he's a very talented racer. I don't know that I'll be right seat with him again. Um, and I would, he knows that, um, but, but I'm very fond of him. <laughs> so that's, he's, that's he, been, he drives uh, on the edge. Well, I said to Darren, when my first time behind the wheel was in the prim 300 and Darren gave me lap one, so hundred miles in the Kia because we were on our way to Africa. And he said, you need to know how to drive this Kia in the event that I torque my wrist or am sick. So I got lap one. And um, I remember being at the start and Darren saying to me through the helmet, so what do you think? How are you feeling? And I said, I'm really excited. And I'm a little scared. And by that point, I done a lot of co-driving so but I said I'm just a little scared and he said good keep that keep them both and I said oh but what do I what do I do I don't know how to drive the edge and he said look Sue learn how to drive the edge and just back off a little and once in a while honestly you're going to go over it but learn how to drive (laughs) right up to it Um, and you're right. That's what Robbie does. And it's paid off for him at times. 
<laughs> there. We all have seen videos of him doing complete rollovers and landing on his feet again and shaking himself off and <laughs> not his co-driver couldn't get out. And then he'd get out and check everything and say, okay, we go again and get going again. But um, yeah, it's, it's a different, it, let me, let me just say it's a different technique from Rod Hall who also would practice tortoise and the hare. He would say, we're the tortoise, they're the hare. And, and he also taught me when, when we were racing, one of the techniques he taught me was with throttle control. Um, he would say, just my inclination was to see something that was a ditch or something that with a change of terrain and break. And he would say, first of all, pick a speed and stick with it. Um, if you can, there are times that you're going to have to break. But stick with that speed because you don't want to be on throttle, off throttle, on throttle, off throttle, because you're torquing your drive line. And that was one piece of advice he gave me. And the other thing he saw very quickly was what I had learned was to break through a ditch. And he taught me, you break before the ditch and you hold your brake and um, then you let it up. and so your compressed suspension pops to life and you're, you're not going through that ditch with your suspension compressed. Correct. So I'm telling you things, you know, but, um, really valuable tips and tortoise and the hair really worked well for Rod Hall. Um, one of my absolute heroes. Yeah. The, the, just talking on the technique of driving, it really, it really has come down to depending on what class you drive in now. Yes. You know, the, whether it's like the top class at ultra four, like at King of the hammers or in the desert racing where it's like the, the trophy trucks or whatever trick trucks or whatever each organization calls them they're They are, they're so good yeah. that you can't say, oh, that guy's going to break, so I can, I can just take my time. Yep. You know, in the lower classes, especially after you get past class one and the trophy truck, you know, that there there can be a lot of that in there where you can make up two or three hours. Um, yeah. But in those top classes, it is, it's like, who doesn't break? You right. Know, and they're driving the edge the whole way. And it's... They're yeah, I've been reading. I'm so glad you pointed that out because it's a different, re- crazily, I was going to say ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. It's just the way of our world today. Off-road racing has become many different things. And thank goodness there's still lots of classes where um, uh, every man can and woman can compete. Right. Um, but the big money <clears throat> that people have to spend to be in a trophy truck and the, the difference between those classes and class three and class eight, both of which I've raced in um, the difference is night and day. And you're right. And I've been reading more and more as I read the finished notes from folks like with this year's Baja 1000 and see that what they're saying is, 
we couldn't lift at all, at all. You know, you just, you're sometimes they're full bore, although sometimes somebody breaks down and, um, or briefly has something happen and then they make it through and they can still be a winner. But mostly those classes, as you know, they're just straight out the whole time. And, um, honestly, um, obviously that's not going to be me ever as a driver. And honestly, I've, um, I've wanted to do some racing with the red lines. Um, Shane Redline's a good friend. He helped me in my aviation career. I helped him a little bit when he first, he and Jack got into some off-roading um, and they just flew through it. They had the time and the dollars to build really good vehicles. And they started in some of the bottom classes and really worked their way up. And I wanted to go race with them um, or be in the helicopter with Shane because um, he flies over the races. But there are times when I see Jacks flying through courses and think, oh, you know, it's it's one thing to be the driver. Um, and it's a, it can be a very different thing to be a co-driver. And that's why I'm so glad that um, the Off-Road Motorsports Hall of Fame has now um, begun to recognize co-drivers, um, and, and our whole field has begun to, um, realize for so many years, the only person that got any publicity was the driver of record. Right. And I was fortunate because I was writing up when I was the co-driver navigator, I was writing up the story. So I always got myself in it, (laughs) (laughs) but anyway, well, I have told you a lot of stories. Um, my final one right now, unless you've got other questions, my final story is going to be that over the last couple of years, uh, I decided that I really wanted to give back that I'd done six Baja 1000s, a couple of Mexican 1000s, the Nevada 1000, um, a couple of Dakars, um, three Dakars at that point, full course, two as a competitor. Um, and I decided I didn't have any interest in redoing the same thing. And I thought if there's something really new that comes down the pike, I would like to do it. But I just don't want to. It's it's so much fun, but it's a lot of time ahead of time during it and after it's a little bit aggressive on your body and I'm, you know, I fashion myself being able to do this as long as Rod Hall did not as well, but as long. Um, and who knows if that's going to happen, but Amy Lerner asked me if I wanted to do a race in the middle East with her. And I said, you know, I don't, um, I really like, I'd love to be your team manager. And when she signed up to do the, um, the 2021 to think of the dates and 2022 Dakar rally. Um, I was with her and it was, I was honestly, I was, I learned a lot. 
because just like I'm not a um, a rebel rally or gazelle rally racer, I'm not a TSD racer for pleasure. Uh, I also did not think that in a million years I would be enamored with the vintage class of the Dakar. And I had seen some vintage vehicles in the middle of nowhere on the Mexican 1000, you know, a variety of crazy vintage vehicles, including a couple of Porsches would come through the sand. And I think, what the heck, where did this come from? Um, but it didn't make me want to be in one or be part of their team. And when Amy started to make plans to do her first Dakar, she was looking at a Range Rover, a Land Rover, and a Porsche 911. And when she told me that she thought she was going to go with the Range Rover, I said, thank God you're not going to be in that 911 with a manual transmission in the desert. It's a rear drive. And my gosh, it's the size of a postage stamp. You don't want to be in an accident in that. And then the next day she called me and said, guess what I bought? And, <laughs> and I was, I was dismayed. I, and I didn't tell her, I mean, she knew how I felt about it, but I didn't tell her until we finished the first year. I was out of my mind nervous about you. Um, but what I learned is there is such a role for bringing back the heritage vehicles. After all, that the vintage class of the Dakar, which just the classics just started two years ago. And my gosh, the first year, I, I think there were 30 eight vehicles or and then this last year there were 50 some that registered and now i think they've they've cut off the registration i'm my numbers aren't perfect on this right now but they had more than a hundred um requests for entry and i think within that classics class this year i've only looked at the course in a few um videos of this year's um, Dakar presentation, which was last week. Um, but what is really exciting, and again, back to let's make this be a sport. Let's make it be an adventure that allows people to bring back the heritage. Those were the early Dakar winners, Jackie Eeks in the, in the Porsche 911 who I think is, I think he's coming back this year. He came and visited us last year at the camp and I had raced with Jackie in 2000. Um, and um, I, I'm so excited that I was able to join Amy for not one, but two years. And by the way, I was really proud of her this year. She won, a, she had a stage win. And for people who haven't done Dakar, <laughs> a stage win is a big deal. It's a really big deal. She had some misfortune um, with uh, a stuck issue and a tire issue um, and didn't place as well as she looked like she was going to place in the beginning. But that's when we go to one of um, one of the things that Kimmel Trophy taught me and even Rod Hall to finish is to win. Right. Yep. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So that's where I am today. I was on course. I also went over for the all women's um, rally, rally Jamil in Saudi Arabia this March as a, a journalist and brought John Reddy and Amy Lerner with me. We were quite an adventuresome team in our own little car. I got um, some speeding tickets that came to me after the fact that I had to pay. Um, um, but we had so much fun. And um, now Amy is sitting out this year's Dakar. I had hooked up with someone um, and was going to be part of an all-women's training team for seven months, racing from Italy to Morocco to Dubai and the Dakar. That all fell apart. Um, not a great story, but and it was going to be a movie. The good news is a number of us that had the passion to do that have continued, and it looks like the movie might be in a different format for next year, and it looks like I'll have a role with that, um, and then training for that, of course, would begin sometime next year, and it wouldn't be till. 2023. No, it would be 2024. That's the funny thing. Dakar is a year ahead of time. This year's Dakar is 2023. Right. So, yeah. So, thank you for asking me a number of good questions and just letting me ramble. Those are the (laughs) best ones. Those are those I, are the best ones though, because you get all the information in the stories. I love it. Well, I took you on an off road adventure uh, on your podcast and for the Off Road Motorsports Hall of Fame, and after all, that's what it's really about. And I I think the big takeaways for me are I had a zest for adventure learned how to take a few photos, learned how to write a caption. And the next thing I knew, I was taught how to write a story and had the the good fortune of being critically ill and caught off guard and thinking, if I get out of this hospital bed, what am I going to do? And realizing that one of my, my second greatest desire other than my family and my daughter was to see the world before I died. And I said, I'd get back to the pages. I used to read national geographics growing up. And I remember on my first deck car through Africa, feeling like I'm driving through the pages of national geographic. And I never thought I'd be able to see the places I've seen and have the adventures that I've had and meet the people that I've met. That's awesome. I mean, that's, that's what life should be. Yes. You know, I'm, too many yes. people live day to day to just make ends meet. And I, while I, I, I give all the kudos in the world to the people that have, that have done that and, you know, eke out a living so that they can they can survive. Those yeah. that have that have stepped out and taken the risks and done done something different so that they can actually live. 
their life is uh, is incredible. Well, not not everyone has an opportunity um, to have a health scare or life changing moment where you're caught up short, and then you come to that crossroads. And one of the things I've said to people is, um, I, I learned to say, seldom in life are you going to be given two parachutes. And sometimes you have to jump off the cliff with one. And remember, I was afraid of spiders and I was afraid of heights. And sometimes you just have to jump off the cliff with one parachute and pray that you'll land. And if not, it'll be that day that we talked about, which is this has been my adventure. And I never thought that when I was 35, and now I'm a little more than twice that, that I, there was a point when I was told, we're not sure we can save you. And to have the gift of not only the years and the people who have helped me, but to have had the gift of saying, I'm going to take this risk. And um, if I get out of this hospital bed. So I've been asked to write the book. I was in the past. I've already have the title and all the stories. I just have to put it together and I can end with that. Um, and that is, it will be called driving for my life, inner and outer journeys. Nice. Everybody write that down. <laughs> yes. I just have to hold still and write it, but please do it's such a, such a metaphor, um, for what driving can do for all of us. Absolutely. Well, with that, it's a great segue. Uh, Sumid, thank you so much for spending the day and recording this and, and talking with us and, and sharing your stories and life history and, and, you know, what was your, and what your motivation was. And that's, that's all we can ask. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate that you took the time and had the interest and, um, I hope that I see you somewhere out there soon, but not at the end of the day waiting for me somewhere on the side of the trail. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All righty. Uh, you take care. And well. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message and let me know uh, any ideas that you have or if there's anybody that you have that you would think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.